You are listening to The Exchange by Evolution, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Asia. I'm Sid, and I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. We will be discussing the topic of frameworks for product leaders, and joining us are two senior leaders who have built and led successful product and technology teams here in Asia. Our first guest is Hao Lin, also known as Z. Um, and he's the head of product and technology at Minden.ai, uh, an AI tech startup behind the popular U app. And next, we have Alfonso Fiore, the former CPO of Happy Fresh, a grocery delivery business in Southeast Asia. Just a quick disclaimer before we get into the discussion. All thoughts and views spoken by any of the speakers or myself are only representative of each individual and not that of their company. So gentlemen, it's great to have you here today. Um, to allow our listeners to get to know you guys a little bit better, let's just start off with some quick um, introductions. So Tsihao, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself and your current role at Minden. Yeah, thanks, Yid. Uh, and thanks, El. Uh, happy to be here. Um, love the energy and everything that's going around. So, um, you mentioned, I'm here of product engineer at Minden.ai. I spent um, the last 10 years of my career in machine learning and AI and trying to build um, AI ML products for big uh, enterprises. So, to be completely honest, uh, Minden AI is the first time I do anything B2C. So, it's great that you have L here whom I, I talked to, you know, we talked to before this, an expert on B2C. So, I think we're going to have a great conversation here. L, over to you. Yeah, so thanks, thanks Sid, and thanks Z, thanks uh, for this opportunity. Uh, yeah, similar to Z, uh, I have uh, I have a 10 years experience in product management. Before that, I had a previous career in telecommunication. Uh, in terms of background, um, computer science degree and, and master in business. And I've been actually active in, in some of the uh, hopefully best known, best in class um, brands in Southeast Asia. I work initially with Agoda in hotel bookings, then Grab, um, I led a few teams at AirAsia, and uh, lately with Epifresh. So it's been quite a journey. Uh, I love this part of the world and um, happy to be here. Awesome. So let's jump right into the podcast proper. So, you know, we know that product leadership is an extremely important part of high growth companies. And each stage of growth actually presents unique challenges for the leaders. Um, running a small team of five and then scaling it to a team of 30 would require very different skills and methodologies to ensure that the organization runs smoothly and effectively, right? So I think that's where, you know, these product frameworks come into play. So, you know, how why are frameworks important and, you know, how have they helped you as a product leader? Yeah, so... Well, credit again to, to Elf for coming up with this idea of product framework. Uh, so for me, a, a framework consists of two parts. Uh, one is principles and the other one is the mechanisms, right? And I think they are both equally important, right? Um, when we have certain principles, uh, these are more long-standing. These are sort of guiding uh, a, a, a pose or, or ways to help you make decisions, whether is it an organizing the team, how you do discovery, how you do delivery, and so on. The mechanisms are sort of 
the process, I mean, I don't like the word process, right? I think it's a bit more than process, but it helps uh, implement these principles, you know, uh, and we in, in product, we have some of these mechanisms that are sort of very widely adopted within the industry. So for me, um, I keep always go back to the principles, right? Um, I've been in uh, early stage companies uh, like, you know, we, I was part of the founding team in Mindanao. I was part of the founding team in, in Terralytics. Uh, and then I went over to Amazon uh, Web Services where we were selling to selling cloud services to, uh, to large enterprises. And I find that um, the mechanisms can change depending on the size of the organization and you have to adapt them. And But what is important is always going back to the principles, right? I, I, maybe I have to make, illustrate it, right? Uh, for me, one of the principles that I keep going back to is how do we organize our product teams? Right? There's certain principles that you want to observe. You want autonomy, right? You want ownership. And you also want to align yourself and make sure you don't violate Conway's law, right? Which is essentially consumers or your customers who experience your product in the way you organize yourselves. So if you have a disjointed uh if you, well, I think one of the common things is that you, you're going to have disjoint, uh, dis, disjointed uh, or at least break in the consumer or customer journey. Right? And you want to be thoughtful on when you break them. If not, consumers might experience a very disjointed experience. Yeah. So for me, principles are always useful because at various stages of the company, I always go back, what is the principle we have? And principles tend to be more evergreen. And when you explain pr principles, it helps to scale the organization because if people understand the principles and know how to apply it, they will, uh, the mechanisms matter less and they will adapt their mechanisms accordingly. Not sure what you think about this, Al. <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I completely agree. And, and in fact, I, I love what you said about uh, the way I call it, the, the way I call that principle is not don't ship the org, right? When you build the product, don't make it look like your org, but make it look like what, what the customer needs. And I totally agree. I think it's, it's, it's very, very true. Yeah, so for me, the way I think about frameworks is, is that basically they are, the reason why I put such an effort and such a, a cognizant thought process around frameworks is because I, I really think uh, you probably heard this, this before, right? This concept of brought, what brought you here won't bring you there, meaning that it's actually kind of funny and counterintuitive, but you become a product leader because you've been an exceptional individual contributor, right? And now, finally, you feel like, oh, you know, I might be doing something good, so I might as well do it, do it better. Plus, you kind of face a completely new set of challenges, right? And so sometimes it's a bit overwhelming, and, and sometimes you might want to, like, by reflex, you want to go back and do what you do best. So there is a problem in the product, and you actually then start to work on that problem, right? Versus, you know, as a product leader, you really want to start focusing on on these principles, like you discussed, so that you know you want the organization to flourish. Now, this is of course uh, not straightforward and it's not black and white. So, if you are of course a, the, a product manager, uh, sorry, a, a head of product of uh, let's say two or three product managers, you will do still a lot of hands uh, hands on work. So, it's it's luckily actually it's a gray scale, right? It goes from all the way white to all the way black, but there are tons of of shades of gray in the middle. But as you keep growing, eventually, you know, you, you won't be able to really dig deep and, and be side by side to any of your product managers. So unless you put together these frameworks and you put a lot of effort, and we'll maybe talk about it later, into making sure that those are uh, 
not just communicated, but embraced by your team, then eventually the organization will collapse because there is nothing to keep it together, right? And you will end, end up by micromanaging or, or like uh, working on a single problem. And then there every, that, that thing might be well, great because you are, you're helping out in that particular thing, but then the rest of the product or the rest of the organization is not performing as it should. So for me, the reason why I, I put so much uh, accent on it and I, and I spoke with, when I spoke with first with Seed, I suggested this as a topic is because this is the only way that you can actually grow your organization because otherwise there is a breaking point. How many reports can you have? You can have five, maybe you can have seven. I think if you're crazy enough, you can have nine, but you know, you cannot have 20, right? So uh, eventually you need to scale. And, and I believe frameworks are a foundational piece of the puzzle when you start scaling your team. Yeah, so I think those are some great points there. So kind of moving a bit deeper into the frameworks, I think one of the main things that as a leader you need to do is kind of set the right metrics and define those metrics. So I guess, um, Alfonso, uh, can you just share, you know, how you define those metrics and how you decide what are the most important things for your team? Yeah, so uh, in fact, there is a framework can take a host of different um, shapes, right? So key metrics are definitely one of those shapes, but but it's not just not the only one, but I think it's a good place to start, right? So the way I think about it is, you know, uh, imagine your team, right? If you've done a great job or a good job at hiring your team, and if you had an existing team in your hands when you arrived in the organization, maybe also coaching them and helping them grow, right? Let's give for granted that you end up with really a strong team, right? So imagine as it, this as a sporting analogy, right? You're a set of rowers and all your rowers are really jacked. They're really strength. They're really strong. They're really ready to, to, to push the boat. But then, you know, you put them all in this boat and they're all rowing in a different direction, right? To me, that's exactly what happens if you don't have this kind of the right metrics and the right focus. Because the key, the, the name of the game is focus. And the way I, I do it is, let's say for each quarter, I try to give a single team a single metric, right? Because if you think about it in this agile methodology that we all, all apply, right? What is it? Is we divide, let's say, the year in quarters, which is fairly normal. Most companies do it, as far as I know. So a quarter is three months. And if you think of a sprint as your average two-week sprints, which most, again, most companies do, then you end up with a quarter being just a collection of six sprints, right? So if you start doing too many different things and you start chasing too many different objectives, six weeks is just very little. And you will have very little to show for at the end of this quarter. So for me, the way I marry this idea of key metrics and the idea of frameworks is that I want to be sure that each team has a very strong focus. So they have to discuss with the, their stakeholder, their respective stakeholders, and within the organization. So there are two phases, right? One phase, one part of the product organization is facing outwards towards other um, key parts of the company. So it could be marketing, could be operation, could be uh, other things. And another part is looking inwards to make sure that the pieces of the puzzle combine together in creating this, this overarching product organization. And then you set up a single metric or you know, I mean, again, here we are talking ideals, then the practice is always slightly different, unfortunately, but ideally you will have a single metric for a single team. And that allows your rowers of our sporting analogy 
to be all rowing in the same direction. And here the rowers are everybody in the product team, right? The product manager, the developers, the designers, the user researcher, the data scientists, the, 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 the product analysts. You know, there is a, a bunch of people that we rely on to be successful. And this metric, in my opinion, is really the one thing that you want to kind of put at, on top of the uh, wall, let's say, ideally in certain organization, actually they do this for real before the remote work. They actually had monitors monitoring this metric uh, in each area of like if a team has, sits in a certain area, they would have a monitor uh, above that area that shows that metric, right? And every day people can observe it and they can see actually it's moving in the right direction or not, right? Because again, this is yet another very long conversation that probably will not have today. But you know, we call about agile, we talk about agile, and then people want to have a year roadmap in ahead in, in advance, right? What's agile in that? Very little, right? So you you know that's why you want to have a, a, a keen eye on this metric because you also want to be able in the in those three months for what as much as possible, you want to be able to rethink your strategy and saying, like, hey, listen, we are one month in or two months in and nothing has been moving. Let's maybe we have to rethink some of our assumption and we want to do something slightly different, right? And then the other thing I wanted to say about, about metrics is the two, two more things, right? One thing is you want alignment across different uh, verticals, right? So again, I was just talking, the, the, the most obvious example of uh, teams that work with, outside, with, with the other teams outside of the product organization are marketing and operation, for example. What you definitely want to be sure as a leader of the product organization is to align with those leaders. So the marketing, the, the person that leads marketing, the person who leads operation to make sure that those teams that work very tightly coupled, they share the same KPI because there is nothing worse than the product team chasing one number and the marketing team chasing another number. That's definitely a recipe for success, for, for failure, right? So you want to be sure that they are actually uh, tight, like, uh, you know, joint at the uh, at the hip in a sense, right? You want to be sure that they really share the same success because then they will work together. And finally, the last thing I wanted to mention, which I think is very important, is to have clear definitions, right? And this is a, yet another framework in a sense, because one thing that really happens often is that a lot of our work, because, because of the way we work, because it's the 21st century, because everything is in a rush, we tend to do a lot using the spoken word, right? Like we're doing right now, right? What is a podcast? Is The podcast is books for lazy people, let's say, right? So, you know, you, 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 you are discussing and you're listening to me and you think you get it and maybe you do or maybe you don't, but unless it's written down and unless you can read my words and be like, actually, you know what? I agree with you, but that's not entirely what I thought or that's not entirely what I said. So the power of the written word, the power of definition is something that I've learned to be very effective. Because what happens often is that, in principle, we agree because we're all smart people, we're all working towards the same objective, but then the devil is in the details. And unless you spend that time to make those clarifications, what you'll end up is people being in the same room, thinking they're working all in the same direction, but being slightly misaligned, which again causes, causes issues, right? So that's a little bit about, about metrics. All right, awesome. So, um, you know, to how I guess, you know, you can build yeah. on that. Uh, let us know a bit more about, I guess, how you do it uh, for your own organization. And maybe if you can, maybe share an example of how you've actually put this into practice. I 
agree and many of the things that Alfonso said resonated with me. I just try to figure out where do I start. I, I, well, one thing I really like about what Alfonso said is about having a, a metric that is aligned across the whole company or the whole, really the whole company in our case, right? Uh, or, or maybe at least brought enough in the organization. Uh, I think many folks have heard about this idea of the North Star metric, where it's a, a supposedly a simple metric. Fortunately for us, we managed to get that implemented in our org. So for us, and even the way we choose the North Star metric, right? The, the, the interesting thing about metric is that they are both a blessing and a curse, right? And if, if you have too many metrics, people always figure out how to game it. So you've got to be intelligent. And so I, what we like about the North Star metric is that it's a very simple one. And we chose it deliberately and we call it, uh, for many companies, it's monthly active users, right? Monthly active users of their app. For us, we chose it as monthly transacted member. Right? Because there are multiple ways to earn or burn, in our case, in our product, multiple ways to earn and burn. And you may not have to do it through the app. So for us, the Nostar metric, you know, to for, to reinforce what uh, Alfonso said, having that single metric, and it aligns every single function knows that. The Nostar metric, our Nostar metric is monthly transacted members. And that helps ease, or at least mix, simplify certain conversations. Right? What is our Nostar? How does this uh, move our Nostar? And then the other area of our metrics is, I, I, and this is something I, I, I can't say I invented it. I copied it from my previous employer, Amazon. I mean, they are, they are well known for this idea of input matrix and output matrix, right? So the output matrix, for in our case, is, for example, the monthly transacted members. If you just focus the output, it is not very effective, right? So the idea of the input matrix is that you work backwards from the customer and then you decide what are the, metrics or what are the levers you can move and you encapsulate it into a single metric or a few metrics. And so how Amazon does it is that every week, they have this thing called the weekly business review where different teams will present their metrics. And it's not about inundating with too many metrics. Every team has to, it takes a, a certain amount of time for each team to figure out what are the input metrics that you focus on. right? And you track on week on week and month on month. So maybe to make it concrete, what I've what I've copied here is that I, I call it uh, the weekly product review, right? So I have six different squads here. So I'll take one simple one, right? Uh, the earn squad. How they contribute to the North Star metric is that they want to get as many members to earn and in any given month. So what are the input metrics they look at? Um, in the case of our product, uh, a very important input metric is that how do we help consumers earn points more quickly? Right. And so we have many different promotions on our app right, that help consumers earn points more quickly. But we notice that consumers are actually not looking at these promotions before. So essentially, they're just going to the store, buying these things, earning these bonus points or points accelerators without knowing and, and seeing it on the app. Right. So for us, that is a very important behavior we want to change. So we, we created an input matrix called the number of... Uh, of views or triggers of these promotions divided or, or per bonus point of each time this promotion is triggered, right? So for us, that is a very important input metric we look at. So it's quite distant away from our output metric, right? Uh, monthly earn members. But our input metric is focusing on really working backwards on the consumer experience, right? And, it, and because we launched just three months ago, it takes us a bit of time, right? To, to get to what are the important input metrics to look at, right? Because... We, we got to always remember that all of us, you know, many of us here have experienced enough and we know that, you know, metrics are both a blessing and a curse, right? And focusing on the customer and 
working, being very rigorous in it and saying that is this the input metric that we should be looking at? Right? And I think I, I read in a book that Amazon uses a few thousand metrics or a few hundred, I cannot remember the exact numbers, but it's amazing the number of metrics they look at just to manage the whole business. Right? And I, it's a, it's not an easy concept to grasp, right? The difference between input metric and output metric. The idea behind input metric is what can you do and what do we do in our weekly product review? We look at week on week and month on month trends, right? So if this, for example, this particular metric I'm talking about actually gone up uh, from less than 10% to above, uh, I mean, you can see the trend, a break in that trend, right? It goes up to over 20%, right? And the first question is, what happened? So it turns out that for us, we sent out a, a, a email educating consumers on this and you can immediately see that break in that trend. And there are other weeks where we try other things that didn't work, right? So the focus on the, the, the metric is, uh, the focus of our weekly product review or in the case of Amazon, the weekly business review is that if a metric is falling or is increasing, what have you done? Is it working or not? I mean, the data scientist in me is saying that correlation is not causation and then there's short-term and long-term effects. But this is the best you could get to, right? And so that focus on the metric is what are you doing to... In because essentially the question is what are you doing to improve the customer experience and is it working, right? And and this ties into everything that we do, right? To to Alfonso talking about, you know, if we once we focus everybody on an input metric in our discovery process, we make hypothesis, is this what features, these features that we are going to implement or these ideas we're going to test, which input metric is it going to, is it going to influence? And then after this feature is tested and, and rolled out, we look at it and see if it's if improving the input metric. If it doesn't, right, we know that this thing doesn't work. Right? So it, it creates that focus throughout the organization and not just to focus, because what we know, and to really focus on the input metric. Right, and not just focus on the output because what I've seen is that when you look at the output metric, it becomes a conversation whereby, oh, okay, our let's say our monthly active users, right, our monthly and active users is dropping. So what do you do, right? It, it isn't that very um, rigorous uh, effort to focus on the customer, right, and focus on the input metric and the output metric will take care of itself. It's a bit unusual, and I'm not sure I'm doing a good job explaining it. It's a bit magical you know when i experienced it for the first time so there's a great book written by two uh amazon long timers called working backwards they describe this whole process in detail uh and and for for i mean for listeners you can go in and, and try to implement it i, I think it's I, i'm not saying that that's one way i i found that it's actually very effective it focuses the con uh, the organization and you can have the very uh i i find it improves the quality of the conversations that we have so uh Al, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I, I, I understand. I think I understand what Z is trying to say, and I, and I kind of agree, meaning that, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you want to have something that you can impact, right? There is nothing you can do practically to impact number of transactions because transaction is at the end of a chain, right? At the end of a chain of events versus there are certain things that, that you can actually impact yourself that through the app, like for example, the visibility of, of, of uh, these discounts, like Z was saying. And so you, you focus on that, not because even though it's at the beginning of a chain, it's just simply the only thing you can impact, right? Unless you go uh, at the home of every single customer and convince them to buy, right? Uh, the, the only thing you can do from product is, is actually that, right? Is actually to, uh, to move things around, understand the customer. And this, I think, maybe where another thing that, that I was trying to uh, do a lot with them with the organization is actually 
bring closer, bring people closer to user experience research, right? Which is something that uh, maybe not every organization uh, does, right? But it's uh, it's very very important to understand how you you utilize uh, how, how customers utilize your application, your website. And ideally, that's exactly what Z said, right? He, he looked at the data and he saw that not that many people would look at this at this information. You can have two sources of, of this type of feedback, right? One is quantitative. If you have product analytics and if you have something like a specific place in the app where you look for this information, then you can use analytics. Or you can do qualitative research, talking to a, a, a small number of customers and then follow their journey, understand how they use the app. And I think maybe to connect to what Z was saying, right? Um, it's very, very important that what we decide to do is not just because, you know, we wake up one morning and we think that this is the right way to do it, right? But it's aligned with the metrics that we want to chase, but also rooted into data, which can be quantitative or qualitative, depending if it's uh, product data or research, but it's very important in order to, to succeed, right? Because otherwise you're just... Uh, based on your experience or based on your best guess, those are not good sources of information. So, but but yeah, I I, I agree with, with what Z was saying. Well, All right. thanks, Al. I think you did a better job at explaining infometrics than I did. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no worries. I, we know, we, we think about these things a lot, right? So I'm sure we look at it uh, and we find the, try the best to explain it. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, we can move on to the next uh, kind of talking point, which is actually a pretty interesting question. And it's, you know, I guess I'll, I'll start with Al. Um, do you have an unpopular opinion that on what will make a good product leader? So I'll, I'll, I'll take this a little bit uh, from from the distance, right? Uh, I, I'm not sure if you if you read it or if you remember, but uh, back when uh, before the days of uh, Peter Thiel being a VC, when he was still uh, working with uh, with PayPal, uh, it became a little bit of a, of a uh, famous. Obviously, I, I I don't know him and I never worked with him, so I can only hope that what I read is true. But it kind of became famous uh, that he has this question during interviews, which is like, "What do you know which is true that nobody else agrees with?" Right? And now I'll, I'll give away, if, if not already, I'll give away a little bit of my geek uh, approach, right? But I've been thinking about this quite a lot, right? And, and honestly, I'll, I'll be very frank with you. I don't have a good answer. So I don't think Peter Thiel will ever hire me, right? But, but I, it's something that I really think and I'm like, okay, what is it that I really believe to be true? So when you, when you talk about uh, unpopular opinion in product management, it's, it's kind of a similar thing, right? Because honestly, we're not putting the, the man on the moon. We're not deconstructing some crazy thing, right? So it's, it's a well-established um, way of working and there are a lot of successful companies around it, right? So anyway, with all this very long preamble, my unpopular opinion, I think, is about micromanaging, right? Because micromanaging gets a super bad rep uh, in, and everybody says, like, you know, it's a horrible thing when my manager micromanages me and et cetera, et cetera. But again, to link back to what I said uh, five minutes ago, it's all about definitions, right? So if you define micromanagement as, you know, uh, somebody looking over your shoulders and uh, somebody telling you what to do or somebody trying to impose their ideas without without a conversation, without working together, then yes, micromanaging is obviously a bad thing. But I think that it has a space in, into an organization, especially when you join, uh, when, when somebody uh, very inexperienced joins uh, the organization, right? So 
I'm very passionate about education. I do a little bit of mentoring on the side in Singapore. I, I take a couple of people that would like to break into product management. They're, you know, I, I have a chat with them. They're smart. They're knowledgeable. They seem they, they a little bit. And we work together on a couple of, of projects, nothing to do with work, right? We work on, on other projects and I help them think uh, in terms of product management, right? The way I, I believe a product manager sh should think, right? And for me, uh, or for example, another example was somebody that I mentored uh, in one of my previous roles. And at the beginning, because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a product manager. You don't get born with product management skills and you there is no school for product managers, right? At the beginning, uh, I had also, I was lucky enough to have the time to do that, but I work very closely with him, uh, reviewing his documents, correcting things and explain, trying to explain, you know, why do you have to be more detailed here? Why do you have to do this and that? And it, it took a while, but I believe that he, you know, he learned, I mean, I know he learned a lot and I know he became a successful independent product manager. And I think that that is in part due to that micromanaging, right? If you want to micromanaging. So it, it, it depends a lot on, on the way you define it, but I don't think that uh, micromanaging per se, it's a horrible thing. So that's my unpopular opinion. All right. Nice. So Z, what's yours? Maybe to first build on what Al said, I actually, I read that book, right, from Peter Thiel. And actually, that's one of my favorite interview questions. Like, I asked him, what is the uncommon truth that you hold, that you know that it's other people don't necessarily believe in uh, or don't know about? And, and for me, it's actually, um, in my case, I think I mentioned, it really built my whole, my last 10 years of my careers in AI, ML, and in B2B enterprise software. And in this part of the world, the challenge I find is that when I try to interview someone for to build a, as a product manager or a product leader, people tend to come in from a, a B2C perspective or many of them may come in from B2C and they, they underestimate the nuances in, in B2B enterprise software product management. Right? I mean, just to give you a, uh, just to give you a flavor, right? In, in B2C, the user is typically the buyer. But in B2B, Depending on how in B2B, depending on how big the organization you are selling to, the user and a buyer might be very far apart. So in small, medium uh, um, businesses, the user tends to be a buyer, right? Which is quite close to, to, to B2C. But you go to, at, at, at the highest level, what they call the Fortune 500 or the Global 2000 kind of enterprises, the user and the buyer it could be sitting three or four different levels or even, even in terms of hierarchy apart. And so it, it might seem simple, Right, um, but but these are some of these nuances that you want to be. They are very subtle, but they can be very profound. Because, for example, if you're a product, a B two B product manager, you'll be engaging. You build an enterprise software, say, and, and you you'll be engaging with so many people throughout the organization. Right, the user will tell you, "Hey, I want to, I, I want this other feature. I want this other UX uh, improvement." But this doesn't change the buying decision of the buyer. We might be looking at something all together, different altogether. In one of the products we are building now, I am saying that we don't even need a user interface for our first MVP because that's not what the buyer cares about. What we need to show is that it gives him the business result, uh, him or her the business result that he or she wants. And then we can build the UI later once we have proven the business uh, uh, result because then you, start, uh, then you start fulfilling the needs of the, the user. So for me, the popular opinion is that uh, there is a difference between B2B and B2C product management. And I see it very often, uh, at least in, in this part of the world, that people tend to 
assume that there isn't or they assume that it's quite easy to, to, to switch from one to the other. And, and for me, that is, uh, I think it's somewhat unpopular in this part of the world. All right. So I think we'll move on to um, the, the final kind of talking point for today. And I think this is something that will resonate with, with a lot of our listeners. Um, and it's about culture. Both of you guys, you know, are leading quite large teams uh, or have led large teams. So how do you maintain a culture as your organization grows? Um, let's start with Al. Yeah, sure. I think this is a very interesting question because that that's something that, uh, again, I had to, to think about and, and face a lot, right? And um, it was a little bit of a, of a wake-up call when, when I <laughs> realized that, of course, when you communicate with your team, right? So this is a, this is a little bit of behind the scenes, right? But as a leader, when the organization starts to grow, right? And you have maybe, you know, considering product, uh, considering design, data, development, you have actually hundreds of, of people in the organization, right? So every time, and this is only about product and tech, right? This doesn't, has nothing to do with operation, marketing, et cetera. So just product and tech, because I was, you know, I, as a, as a chief of product, I work very, very closely with the CTO, with the chief of technology. So we have a, we, we try to be as aligned as possible. And so our organization is, is quite large. And so every single, the way I think about calling in all ends, it's actually super tricky, right? Because every single meeting, minutes of meeting, actually it, it costs the organization 200 minutes, right? So for each single minute we are in that call, the organization lost three hours which is insane if you think about it, right? So you really, really want to be careful about why you call those um, those meetings and you try to be to be efficient, et cetera, right? But then what's, what's funny is that what you realize is that is everybody's human. So a lot of people, yeah, yeah, they're in that call, but God knows, right? The, the laundry is, uh, they have to pick up the laundry. The, 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 the baby is at the preschool and uh, I don't know, they have to walk the dog. So you think like, oh, you know, I'm going to be super efficient. I'm going to explain those things. And, you know, the organization will magically get better the minute after. Obviously, that's complete, you know, not true. Let's just be politically correct. It's very, very not true, right? So one thing that I've learned, right, is, is that you really, uh, and you, you want to kind of think through when you share those kind of concepts, this kind of uh, foundation that you want your culture to have, those pillars, but at the same time, you want to repeat them again and again and again. So to answer your question, what do you need when an organization grows? First of all, you need to have a set of principles, right? Because initially, especially for a company that, that you've been through from a startup level onwards, right? When there are five people in the room, you know, you just raise your head, you say something, and then you go back to work and everybody's aligned. Once the, the organization starts to be of hundreds of people, of course, it never, it's never that easy. So one of the the framework that I use one of the things that I that I talk about with my teams is called the telephone game, right? The, the the thing that you that maybe some of us played as kids, right? Where the kids are aligned at the beginning of the of the line, somebody says elephant, and at the end of the line, the last kids hears banana, right? There's nothing to do with elephant, right? And this happened on in our organizations every single day. And it's crazy, right? I've 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 had with I witnessed this situation where people said, "Yeah, but you said this thing," and then I walk it backwards. I talk to five people, and then I learn how the message got distorted each step of the way, so that at the beginning I said elephant, 
and the last person heard banana, right? And so, you know, in order to, so you, you, you have to start by having those pillars and making them very clear. But then over the course of the organization and on a very, very regular basis, you really need to kind of be strong and, and repeat them and make sure that everybody makes them their own, right? So the best experience, the best, uh, let's say, feedback I got is when some of my, of the people in my team would actually, I would be into calls where I would just participate, maybe listen, maybe, you know, just, just be part of the entire, the, the entire thing. And some people in my team would, would actually say one of the things that, that, you know, I, I share with them, right? Such as like, you know, maybe this was, this, this situation was a telephone game or, you know, let's start with the problem statement. I don't know. I can, I can list a few, right? But when I feel the team has absorbed those, those um, way to work, and they make them their own, and now they're impacting their their day-to-day work, then I feel like I've succeeded in sharing this culture and making sure it proliferates, right? But it's important to understand that, that there are three things that will happen all the time. First of all, you share something. You know, if you're hired, if you hired well, and if you hire the good team, people will sometimes just disagree with you, right? So if I say, you know, this thing is blue, and you'll be like, in your mind, you'll be like, well, you know, you're the boss. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, but you're wrong. And this thing is red, right? And so it's going to take you a long time to explain that actually it's blue because that person, first of all, that person will not tell you I disagree with you, right? Because you're the boss. So it's going to take a long time to get get them on your side, right? And, and maybe sometimes you're wrong and you learn that it's actually red, right? That's also possible. But anyway, you want to create that alignment and that takes a while. The second thing is that, as I said, they might not be listening at all, right? They might be focusing on something else. So it's important that you repeat for that reason. And the third thing that is even even more sad in a way is that they maybe forget, right? It's maybe not a key thing for them and they don't really think about it that much. So it's something which is important to you and it's responsibility to make it clear and to share with your team that it's important for them as well, right? It's not just because I said it that my team is going to implement it for sure, right? Yeah, so that's those are some of the things that I some of the things that I think when I think about a growing organization. All right, Z, what about you? It's always a, a difficult topic. I mean, it's always a for us and for me maintaining culture is so as as the team is growing very quickly in our case, right? right? I think we're going to double within the next year or so, uh, just because of our growth. And I agree with L. It comes down to hiring and the principles uh, within the organization. For us, um, culture is it's about the people you bring in. Right? If you bring in the people of the right culture, it's so much easier. Right? Or whatever you define as the right culture. And I think that's what Al said about principles being very important. Right? If, you can, if you align on the principles of what is the culture you want, and then you evaluate the, the people, the candidates based on these principles, and you make sure that within the organization and, and performance reviewed, you are measured across these principles, right? So it creates a very positive feedback loop. People who come in are, are known to have done well on most or if not most, of, uh, most if not all of these principles. And then every year they are graded or they're given feedback on how they are doing on these principles. I think the other, and, and this could be me suffering from the recency bias because I, I just had a, a tough conversation with uh, uh, one of our product leads where I have to give him uh, give feedback. I, I think part of, uh, you, can, I, you can say that a feedback uh, giving feedback is also part of the culture or you can say that being able to give feedback help to reinforce the culture and, and it's 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 never easy to give feedback right it's 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 always tough and 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 you don't want it to 
you don't want it to happen only once a year. You want to give it quickly when something happens so that people can cost correct. It's a bit like what else said, you know, our agile, you roll out things quickly, small, in small iterate, iterations, and then you can iterate on that. And so for me, is yeah, giving that feedback helps to learning how to give feedback and getting folks comfortable in giving feedback and accepting feedback. I think it's very important in reinforcing whatever culture you like to build because even in tech companies, there are different kind of cultures. Right? Facebook is going to be move fast, break things. Apple is more measure twice, cut once. So there's no certain right culture and I think every organization will decide on its own and using those principles to decide on its hiring and to reinforce it within the organization and then using feedback to help reinforce that culture. Yeah, so I 100% agree with you, Z. Even as a recruiter, we do see how challenging it is for companies to hire the right people in terms of culture. And I think that the points you raised were very valid about how we need to ask the right questions during the interview process to figure out if the people that we are looking to hire are the right fit. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But I'd like to thank Al and Z for joining us on the podcast It's been a real pleasure having you here and the conversation that we've had today has been really insightful and I'm sure that the listeners would agree. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in and please stay tuned for the next one.